Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Just bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie will connect you with local pros who match your specific needs. Or book a service instantly at an upfront price. So join the millions of homeowners who use Angie to care for their homes and get your next home service job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Tonight, straight from the source, new explosions in Gaza as Israel exposes more of Hamas's horrors to the world. Plus, there are dire humanitarian warnings coming out of Gaza tonight as Israel is vowing to continue blocking food and water until the hostages are freed by Hamas. And with aid to Israel on the line, House Republicans have devolved into complete chaos tonight. The Republican nominee for speaker has just dropped out of the race. I'm Caitlin Collins, and this is The Source. Tonight, an unrelenting series of Israeli fire is raining down on Gaza. Explosions could be heard until just a short time ago. We're live in a moment with Anderson Cooper on the ground in Tel Aviv, as there's also an ongoing buildup of IDF troops and tanks at the border and a resounding message from the United States, which was personally delivered by Secretary of State Antony Blinken today, who forcefully said, and I'm quoting him now, Israel will never be alone. Standing alongside him, you can see him there, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, who called this a, quote, time to stand united against evil. And to show the world what that evil looks like, Netanyahu released three graphic images today. They are three horrific pictures of babies who were slaughtered by Hamas. Secretary Blinken, whose stepfather, I should note, survived the Holocaust, struggled to even talk about those images after he saw them. A baby, an infant, riddled with bullets. Soldiers beheaded. Young people burned alive in their cars. There is revulsion, disgust, and a determination, a determination not to allow this to go forward. The Secretary of State clearly moved after seeing those photos. I should note that tomorrow, U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin will also be visiting Israel. He'll be there to discuss military support. And all of this is coming as the White House has now confirmed that the number of Americans killed in Saturday's surprise attacks by Hamas has now risen to 27. 14 Americans still remain unaccounted for tonight. And meanwhile, there are dire warnings from humanitarian groups about the crisis that's unfolding in Gaza. Israel has vowed no power, no water, no fuel, no other supplies until the hostages are returned. I want to get straight to CNN's Anderson Cooper, who has been live in Tel Aviv all day. Anderson, I know you're in Tel Aviv now, but you also visited the scene of that Nova Music Festival where so many young people were killed. What did you see when you went there today? Yeah, the scene is much as it was uh, at, at, by Sunday morning uh, after uh, the, the slaughter that took place there. As you know, more than 216, excuse me, more than 260 people uh, were killed there, according to, uh, to Israeli uh, officials. Um, burned out cars, shot up cars, bloodstains in vehicles, on car seats, bloodstains, uh, on the walls of bomb shelters where dozens of young people tried to seek safety 
cramming into small bomb shelters, maybe 15 feet long by six feet wide, dozens of people in there. Uh, and in a number of locations, grenades were thrown in by, uh, by Hamas uh, gunmen, repeatedly thrown in. Um, there's video that exists from inside those bomb shelters, which I've seen, which are probably the most gruesome things I've ever seen. Um, and I think all the soldiers who are there have been deeply affected by what they have seen there. I spoke to an IDF commander uh, on the ground there, a rear admiral, um, who talked about the soldiers who were there seeing, seeing what happened and taking that with them and motivating that in the fight to steel themselves for the fight that's ahead. Because I think everybody here knows, all, certainly all the soldiers, the 300,000 or so reservists who have been called up, uh, are aware of what lies ahead and the difficulties of it and the difficulties of fighting in a place with such a, a big civilian population in such small cramped quarters and trying to separate the Hamas terrorists from the civilian population. Everybody is aware of the difficulties that lie ahead. Um, but I've never heard such anger and resolve in a fighting force than I have uh, just today in talking to, uh, to a number of, the, of these soldiers. I mean, these forces that you, these reservists that you spoke to today, I mean, a lot of, I mean, in Israel, obviously, it's compulsory. They all are, uh, all of them have been called up. I know it's 300,000. I think it's the biggest uh, mobile reserve of the mobilization of them that ha has ever happened in the country. I mean, I can't even imagine what's going through their mind to have just seen their neighbors, their friends, their families slaughtered and now to be preparing for this. I think many people, and certainly the uh, the rear admiral I spoke to, to today, you know, talked about how this f is different. That that what has occurred here uh, is kind of a watershed uh, event, and my, that's my word, not not his. But that this is something that in the the you know the rear admiral I talked to had joined up in when he was 18 years old. I think he's now 46 or, or 47 years old. He's fought in a lot of different fights, um, but he says things this one is different, this has to change, they have to change the paradigm on the ground uh, in Gaza, that they cannot allow Hamas any longer uh, to, uh, to, to operate and to train up again and to do this again in the future. Whether that's going to be possible or not remains to be seen. Obviously, Kaylin, as you well know, in past incursions, in past uh, exchanges with Hamas, international pressure grows very quickly uh, to, to cease operations because of the huge civilian population yeah. inside Gaza. That no doubt will occur again. The question is, will that impact the, the length of any kind of operation that's moving forward? It remains to be seen. Yeah. Anderson Cooper, thank you. We'll be back with you later on in the show. And of course, that fighting force that Anderson and I were just talking about, it's made up of people like my next guest, Sergeant Major David Citrone. He's a father of two, a third on the way. His day job is as a tech investor. Now he's an Israeli reservist called to duty, and he joins me tonight. And thank you so much for being here. Obviously, can we just start with you walking me through what happened on Saturday? I know obviously it was a Jewish holiday. How did it go from slow? How did you go from slowly figuring out what was going on and then realizing that Israel was under attack? Sure. Uh, thank you so much for having me. So like you said, it was, it was Saturday. It was a Jewish holiday. Uh, I'm an observant Jew, so we don't really touch our uh, phones or electronics. Um, start off the morning with a uh, rocket uh, siren, uh, which was abnormal for the location that I was in uh, with my family. Um, 
first one goes off, you think it's just a coincidence, and the second and then third, you realize that something's wrong. So the first instinct is to go and check your phone. Uh, so you turn on your phone, and your second instinct is to touch base with your uh, unit commander and reserves, just to understand what's going on. Um, the first message I received from my commander was, nothing's happening for now, there's an incident in the south, uh, stay put. And then that quickly escalated within an hour to get to base as soon as you can. Um, so the escalation, at least from our perspective and being out of the loop uh, to being completely in the loop and understanding what's going on uh, was relatively quickly, but yeah. it was still nowhere near understanding what was actually going on. So it seemed as if nothing to worry about at the, be- the beginning and then you realized obviously quickly it was. I mean, what was it like when you, when you got to the base? I think it was, um, there was a lot of uh, emotions. Um, I've never seen such a great number of soldiers on a base at a single point, point in time. Uh, served in military mandatory service and reserves for the past 11 years. Um, but I've never seen so many soldiers to the point where, you know, highways were parking lots. People were parking on the side of the road and then hiking about two miles just to get to the base. Um, so it was really impressive to see uh, people showing up so quickly. Uh, but also, you know that it's a different situation when th- these that many soldiers show up in such a short period of time. As I mentioned, David, you have two kids. I know your wife is pregnant with your third. I mean, first, let me say congratulations. I know that's a really exciting time in any family's life. But how have you explained to them, as you were just saying, how this is different than before? How have you explained to them why you had to leave, why, why dad needed to go? I think it's, it's, it's not, you know, I'm, I'm not special. I think, you know, living in Israel, um, the situation is that this is our only shot. This is our only country. Um, and we need to do everything we can to protect our country and it's balancing, you know, the personal versus the, 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 the greater, you know, national aspect of it, you know, your family versus your country. Uh, but the reality is, is if we don't have a strong country, we don't protect our borders and we don't protect, protect our country uh, as reservists or as citizens, uh, we won't have families uh, at all. So it's, it's, I, I don't want to say it's easy to reconcile, but there, there is a way to reconcile it internally. And then it's just a matter of portraying, you know, as much calmness as you can. Uh, my wife is a superhero back home with our kids. We have got a support system from family that are able to help. But the... The anecdote that I would like to share is when, you know, when I say goodbye to my wife, you know, at the doorstep, mm-hmm. um, giving her a hug and a kiss, you know, trying to hold back the tears and, you know, seeing her doing the same, getting in the car and driving off, you see the exact same scene in every house down the street, seeing like a replication of that goodbye moment between a husband and a wife, whether the husband is, is off, off to reserves or the wife is. Um, and then you realize that you've got your own personal life, but it's everyone, it's everyone else together. So there is a collectivism here. It's kind of amazing to think of you going through that moment of leaving your home, leaving your wife who is pregnant and your children, and seeing other families going through that exact same thing at the exact same time after this shared national trauma. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to, to, to process. I think we haven't had a situation like this, at least since the, the Yom Kippur War. Uh, which is you know almost exactly 50 years ago, the the level of calamity that, that just unfolded in the past couple of days is is indescribable. I think you, you've you've been exposed to the images, um, and I think the American public needs to be exposed to the images. 
But what we've seen here on the ground, what I personally witnessed, what my friends have witnessed, just images that are, you know, ISIS. We're, we're dealing with ISIS. We're dealing with full-blown terrorism. We're dealing with modern-day Nazism. Um, you know, I've lost friends. Friends of mine have lost friends. Friends of mine have lost brothers and sisters, uh, whether they were in active duty or they just went to, to help uh, um, knowing what was going on. So just the, 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 the existential threat level that, it, that, that occurred in the past couple of days kicks into gear. And, you know, we like to say never again, but it's not a cliche. It's, it's real. Like we need to protect ourselves. This is our homeland and this is our only shot. So, you know, seeing what's going on, seeing the images, which are horrifying, you, the, the instinct kicks in to, to just protect everyone, your family uh, from a personal perspective, but the country in general. David Citron, thank you for taking the time to share that because it's a very important perspective. Thank you for that. And we will make sure our audience does, does see that and does hear those stories. Thank you very much. A retired Israeli general who rushed to confront Hamas attackers himself didn't hold back in criticizing his own government and military, calling what happened on Saturday a complete failure. It's a total collapse. I'm, I'm not going to say any excuses. It's a total collapse. It's a systematic collapse. It's, it's the intelligence, it's the whole defense system. Uh, the defense system has a lot of, of elements, you know, it's, it's, it's defense, it's the technology, it's the deployment of the army, it's the backup, it's so many things. It all collapsed. We have new reporting ahead on what Israeli intelligence did pick up on the eve of the attacks. Plus tonight, the humanitarian crisis is growing in Gaza. Hospitals are running out of fuel. People are in danger of starving. We're going to get an update on that very important story next. Tonight, we are seeing what is perhaps the most haunting image to emerge from the slaughter of well over a thousand people who were killed in Israel by Hamas. It is just one of the photos that was shown earlier today to Secretary of State Antony Blinken when he was in Tel Aviv, shortly before he compared Hamas to ISIS. I want to warn you, it is very upsetting. I'm going to give you a moment to prepare yourself or to even look away if you need to. It's a photo of a baby whose tiny body is stained with blood and was murdered by Hamas terrorists. It's a picture that takes your breath away. The Israeli government acknowledged it's unusual to release a photo like this of a family's dead child, but believe it's important for the world to see these atrocities firsthand. I want you to know that we here as a team also struggled with whether or not to show it, but feel it's necessary to grasp the sheer brutality of Hamas, their complete disregard for human life, including the massacre of innocent babies. Angie has made it easier than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project, Angie lets you compare quotes from multiple local pros, browse homeowner reviews, and even book a service instantly. Angie's been connecting people with skilled pros for nearly 30 years. So the next time you have a home project, bring it to Angie to get your job done well. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. 
This week on Chasing Life. I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. The U.S.'s ability to provide Israel with more aid in the wake of the deadly attack by Hamas is now even further undermined tonight on Capitol Hill. Congressman Steve Scalise has just dropped his bid to be the next Speaker of the House, something he just confirmed. There are still some people that have their own agendas. And I was very clear, we have to have everybody put their agendas on the side and focus on what this country needs. This country is counting on us to come back together. This House of Representatives needs a speaker and we need to open up the House again. CNN's Manu Raju is live on Capitol Hill, where there has been a lot of venting behind closed doors today, maybe even not behind closed door. Manu, uh, I think this is like an eight-day bid that Steve Scalise had here to be the next House Speaker. I mean, what's next? Is it Jim Jordan? Is another candidate going to emerge? Is it even clear right now? It's not clear right now, Caitlin. We do expect Jim Jordan to announce that he will officially run for the Speaker of the House. But I can tell you, in talking to several Republicans, they're not sold on Jim Jordan as the next Speaker of the House. There are some who are not as conservative as him, some more moderate members who are concerned about Jordan's more conservative politics. And there are also members who are in key races, who are not sure that Jordan could be the best Speaker for them as they hit in a daunting election year environment. In fact, many of these Republicans and some these swing districts are flatly concerned that the disarray that we have seen in the past week and this crisis on Capitol Hill will only undermine their efforts to keep their seats and they could potentially lose the majority next year amid all of this. Now, this all happened rather quickly. Steve Scalise was nominated just yesterday to be the new Speaker of the House after that historic vote, an unprecedented vote last week where McCarthy was ousted from the Speakership. But there was a problem for Steve Scalise, the math. He only had 113 votes to be nominated so as speaker, the speaker candidate for the GOP, he needed 217 votes on the House floor. And there were more than a dozen, maybe up to roughly two dozen or so Republicans who simply would not vote for him. He tried all day long in closed-door meetings to swing them, to urge them to come his way. Ultimately, that did not happen. So that's why he went to his conference tonight and said he is stepping aside, now leading to more questions about how the Republicans will go forward. Now, we expect tomorrow Republicans will again meet at 10 a.m. Eastern behind closed doors to talk about their way forward. We'll see if any other candidates emerge. No names have yet emerged yet. There's a possibility that Jordan will have a chance himself to prove he can get 217 votes to be elected speaker. But if he doesn't get it or if there's a challenge, then we'll see what the next step is. Some talk of elevating the powers of the interim speaker, Patrick McHenry, to consider legislation on the floor. That is one area of discussion, but it just shows you the unprecedented moment we're in as Republicans are badly divided and Congress is completely paralyzed, unable to address key national issues at this time. Yeah, absolutely. Just the idea that there was going to potentially be a vote yesterday seems like so far away. Manu, thank you so much. Joining me here on set, Senator Cory Booker, who was in Jerusalem, I should note, when the attack on Saturday began. New Jersey Democrat was forced to take cover as Hamas unleashed its killing spree. Obviously, I want to talk about what that experience was like. But this chaos that is happening on Capitol Hill obviously has consequences. Things like aid to Israel, aid to Ukraine, all on the line. I mean, what do you make of, of the fact that 
they can't find a House speaker. I mean, it has a stunning implication for what our country can do in a time of crisis. Let's be clear. The partisanship uh, that often rankles our country is not present here. The majority of House uh, Republicans, majority of House Democrats, majority of Senate Republicans Democrats want to support Ukraine. They want to stand by our ally Israel. They even want to fund the government. So to have a small group of House members uh, that are so extreme right now that they're undermining the ability of the United States, uh, the United States Congress, the Article One branch of Congress, to respond to this crisis is very frustrating. I mean, and you saw it firsthand. I mean, you were in Jerusalem on Saturday when this happened. Can you just walk me through what that was even like to be there as the warning signs started to show of what was really unfolding? So I went there to meet with Palestinian leaders and Israeli leaders and then move on throughout the Middle East because there is an effort going to normalization, centering the Palestinian in these Palestinians in these discussions that's more hopeful than I've ever seen in my lifetime. The night before I was there, I got there early because I wanted to spend Shabbat with friends. It was Simchas Torah, a holiday that's very important to me. I was dancing with the Torah. My host for that evening, the, the friend that I brought with me, uh, by the next morning, their family members were being killed. Uh, I'm out running, and I've never had a call like that in my life. Get back to the hotel. The rockets have been launched towards uh, Israel. And then it was a holiday, and to have these filled bomb shelters with children and parents all gathered together, some Americans who can't look at their phones, leaning on you for information about what's going on. And the more you look, the more the horrors, the staggering implication. So they're learning from you what was going on. It, it, it was um, just horrific and grotesque. And then it, just imagine living in a country where it's so small that you're one degree separated from people that are being murdered. I have a friend with me tonight in the studio who lost in uh, Kafar, the, the kibbutz, who lost her niece, niece's husband, children locked in a closet praying that they would be able to survive, which these two boys did. The stories are a lot more intimate and personal uh, to people who are that connected to the violence or, God forbid, who lost their lives or their family members did. You and your staff were able to get out, obviously, leaving Israel at the time so much is going on there. There are a lot of Americans who have been in Israel desperately trying to get out, but domestic airlines have been canceling so many of the flights in and out of Israel. The U.S. is going to start chartering flights tomorrow, the White House announced today, but should they have done that sooner, do you think? You know, I've talked to State Department officials literally as the rockets were being launched until now. This is an extraordinary amount of effort that's been going on to get people out. I'm glad that they're now doing chartered flights. They're gonna be taking other efforts. There are efforts to, to support Americans that are stuck in the in Gaza right now and find ways to get those Americans out. So the state is incredibly difficult. Look, what Hamas has done, this terrorist organization that in its very charter is not to stand against the state of Israel. Their charter is to kill Jews. We need to be clear. This organization in their founding was not about Israel. We are killing Jews. It's a hate organization reminiscent of ISIS or even, even the Nazis. And there, before we even get to this decade, any time the Palestinian people had meaningful progress with Israelis towards real peace, remember right after the Oslo Accords, where you have a Palestinian leader and a Israeli leader winning the Nobel Peace Prize, what is this hate organization's response? To begin an unprecedented efforts to bomb civilians, buses, killing and murdering uh, the Israel, Israel, Israeli people. 
And so at a time when I was hopeful, on my way to celebrate a holiday and then move through the Middle East, meeting with Arab leaders, Israeli leaders, Palestinian leaders, on this extraordinary effort building upon the Abraham Accords, when you have the leader of Saudi Arabia on Fox News saying every day we are getting closer and the Palestinian people are, are the critical element. When I talk to the State Department, mm-hmm. when I talk to others, the Palestinians were a key part. Having meetings, they had Saudis had not been to the West Bank since 1967, and they're now getting together was talking about this deal. This hate-filled organization targeted civilians, killed and murdered, not just Americans, Brazilians, Argentinians, French, not just Israelis. It is the most heinous attempt to upend human rights, security and dignity of Israelis and Palestinians. Do you think part of it was to, because I spoke with Prime Minister Netanyahu three weeks ago, he was very hopeful that they were on the cusp of a deal. That deal would have reshaped the Middle East. I mean, do you think that that deal is still possible now though? So I'm going back uh, in about a week in a a very small group of bipartisan senators to Saudi Arabia. I, I left Israel on a mission. I was not going to let the terrorists stop our efforts to go to Bahrain, mm-hmm. to go to UAE. I, I continued my talks with high-level leaders there. And let me tell you, in those countries, from business people, media, everyone knew what Hamas was about. That this is an evil organization, not representing what is best for the human rights and dignity of the Palestinians. In fact, they saw them as frustrating elements to peace and security and a two-state solution. And so I'm not letting that progress stop. I talked to the State Department uh, um, today. I've talked to the President of the United States twice in the last few days. Everyone is determined not just to meet this crisis, stand with Israel and their right to self-defense, but to continue the work to get dignity and security for everyone in the region. Well, one question about this, though, has been what the Deputy Treasury Secretary told House Democrats today, which is he says the U.S. government, Qatar, came to an agreement that the $6 billion in Iranian funds that came from South Korea won't be touched, that basically it's been put on ice. Do you think it should stay frozen? I think we should be doing everything we can to end this organization of Hamas. I don't think any of these dollars... Which the way Iran, Iran funds? Iran funds. Look, the, the Qataris who are playing a constructive role, they have to self-examine. There are Hamas leaders living in Qatar. There, there are a lot that we have to get to the bottom of. But there should be no confusion in the United States of America. There should be no equivocation. This is an organization, Hamas, that is focused on destroying pathways to peace, killing civilians, and perpetrating hate. Look at Amnesty International's reports about what this organization has done, the brutalizing, the kidnapping, the killing of Palestinians. This organization must end. And we should have moral clarity in this country, bipartisan, for people who love uh, uh, children, love Palestinian children, love Israeli children. This is a moral moment where we need clarity and focus. One, to stop terrorists, whether they're ISIS or Hamas, to stop people who live and focus on hate, but to embrace constructive, real pathways to peace. And this is historic. And you're in my lifetime. We have never had regional leaders, Arab leaders, Muslim leaders, and by the way, Hamas is destructive of Islam and Islam's principles. We've never seen a, a moment like this where you have such an accord of, of, of nations that want to find a pathway to peace and normalization in the region. And I'll tell you what, you know who doesn't want it? Iran doesn't want it. 
know who doesn't want it? Hezbollah doesn't want it. You know who doesn't want it? Hamas doesn't want it. So we should fight for Palestinian dignity and security. We should fight for Israel's, stand unequivocally by Israel's right to exist, right to defend itself. But we should be embracing this pathway to peace that right now has a diverse actors. I'm not giving up. That's why I'm going back to the region uh, uh, in a matter of days with, with Republicans, Republicans and Democrats from the Senate. Yeah, we'll see if it remains intact. Senator Cory Booker, glad you're safe. Glad you're here to join us tonight. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Also tonight, speaking of what's happening in Gaza, the Red Cross is now warning that hospitals could be turning into morgues. They are running out of fuel. They are running out of food. We have the latest on the ground with Anderson Cooper in just a moment. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Tonight, Israel's siege of Gaza is choking off food, water, and fuel. And with Israel continuing airstrikes today, more than 330,000 people in the Palestinian territory have now been displaced from their homes. The United Nations is warning that Gaza is on the brink of a humanitarian disaster as many hospitals find themselves overwhelmed tonight. I want to bring Anderson back in. Anderson, of course, today the White House said that there are what John Kirby described as ongoing conversations with Israeli officials about the need for continued the continued flow of humanitarian assistance into Gaza. But, I mean, Israel has not let any goods in since the strikes began, just kind of underlining how dire this could get very quickly. Yeah, I mean, it's already dire for civilians in, in Gaza. There, there's, there's no doubt about it. Um, the hospitals there say they're running out of gas, which means running out of fuel for generators, which means incubators, everything that we need, power, uh, would not be, be working. Israel has said that uh, in order for anything to come across, Hamas has to return the 150 or so hostages that, that have been taken. That seems like something Hamas is not willing to do, no matter how dire the, the situation may be for the civilian population. As you know, Hamas has spent a lot of money building tunnels under, under Gaza uh, to uh, allow for the movement of Hamas uh, fighters, uh, militants, and uh, weapons. There are not bomb shelters that they have built. They've, those, those tunnels are not for the civilian population to seek shelter and therefore uh, Hamas to operate in. Um, so, you know, obviously with Israel, if they do intend to go in on the ground, it is going to be a very bloody and very dangerous situation for Israeli troops and for civilians uh, on the ground in Gaza. And there doesn't seem to be any way around that. Egypt is not allowing the border to open to allow, you know, inevitably hundreds of thousands of Gazan residents to come across and settle there in the Sinai for however long it takes. That's a security threat they are not willing to undertake and haven't been uh, in, in past years. So it's very, I mean, it is clear that it is gonna be a very, very dire situation, whatever the military operation is moving forward. And it is, unless something gives, it's gonna be incredibly difficult and incredibly dangerous and it's gonna be awful. 
Yeah, and Hamas, of course, doesn't care about those civilian Palestinians. Anderson Cooper, thank you. Joining me now to talk about what could be unfolding is the executive director of Doctors Without Borders USA, Avril Benoit. Avril, thank you for being here. I mean, from hearing what Anderson was warning about, is not A, what's already happening, B, what could be to come. What are you hearing from your teams on the ground in Gaza? We have uh, roughly 300 colleagues uh, that have been working in Gaza for many years because although we are impartial, we're uh, humanitarians with principles of neutrality guiding us, we do focus on areas where there are gaps. Gaza has been what we would call a humanitarian chronic crisis for so many years, mm -hmm. and that's why we were there. And now it's a full-blown catastrophe. What we're hearing from the hospitals that we support is that it's very difficult for patients to even reach the hospital. Everyone's terrified just to move. It's impossible for staff sometimes, medical staff, to be able to go to work. And if they do go to work, they don't know if they'll ever see their families again at night. For the medical supplies, we moved around three weeks worth of supplies to Al-Awas Hospital, which used them up in three days because of the influx of injured people. And so, the situation in the hospitals is absolutely overwhelming. And this looming crisis uh, as a result of the siege of not being able to bring in more supplies, bring in more staff, bring in uh, the, the fuel for the generators, bring in water. Um, I, I do agree with the analysis and the commentary from the International Committee of the Red Cross that the hospitals will become morgues. Because that hospital, if it if it's out of power and they're running on generators and the generators run out of fuel, I mean, it's, and then they can't not only serve anyone, but even for the people who are there. Yeah, you've got preemie babies in incubators. You've got people who count on dialysis in order to be able to, to live another day. You've got people on respirators, they need oxygen. Uh, the, the situation without electricity, a hospital really has very few levers to be able to save people. Without water, clean water, you have such a tremendous risk of, of spread of infection, uh, and that's what's going to kill people. And then, you know, think about without the medicines. We have hospitals now that are running short of anesthesia to be able to do the surgeries. Imagine the, the, what that surgeon with that surgical team, the nurses, everybody in the operating theater is going through knowing that there's no more anesthesia. Do you know how many hospitals are still able to even run semi-properly at this time? Well, a number of hospitals have actually been uh, harmed in airstrikes. So even some, our own clinic on Monday uh, was damaged. It's functional again. And other hospitals that we are supporting, there are three of them that have suffered some, some damage, but they're, they're doing the best they can to be able to work in the parts that are not damaged, to, to be able to continue. I mean, it really is life or death. But as I say, even, even the risk of moving from A to B, uh, of transporting patients in ambulances, I've heard a report of four ambulances have been hit in airstrikes, uh, uh, completely destroying the ambulances, and one person reported dead. Don't know about many others. I mean, these are just the, the, the little pieces that we hear about. What did you refer to Gaza as a chronic a chronic humanitarian crisis that is now a crisis. catastrophe. Can you put it in perspective of, of how this is different from what it's been like before, when, when strikes have happened, when there's been a blockade? Yeah. How is this, how does this change? How is this different? Well, what we're hearing from our colleagues on the ground, some of whom have lost their homes, or they receive the text messages being told, okay, flee now, 
uh, there's going to be a strike. But of course, there's nowhere to go. You just stand around in the middle of the night uh, looking at the sky, wondering how, how can we possibly hide anywhere. What they're reporting is that, you know, block by block uh, and sometimes night after night, the same areas are getting bombed. And so it's just it's just terrifying. Um, and it, it's creating uh, what what we see as uh, an impossible situation, only likely to get worse in terms of the, the human toll. Avril Benoit, thank you. And of course, thank you for sharing the perspective of your colleagues who are actually on the ground living this. Thank you. Thank you for tonight. Ahead, as we were talking earlier, not just what's happening in Gaza, we're also looking at the bigger picture here. What Israeli intelligence reportedly stumbled upon on the eve of these attacks by Hamas? One of the biggest questions that is still unanswered from Saturday's brutal attack by Hamas was how they were able to pull off such a coordinated surprise assault. Tonight, we are learning more about the apparent intelligence failures as Axios is reporting that Israeli security chiefs didn't put the border on high alert despite picking up on signs of irregular activity among Hamas operatives in Gaza the night before. Joining me now is Barak Ravid, who broke this story. And Barak, obviously you have been speaking to sources. You've learned that the day before this attack, there were these signs that seemed to suggest Hamas could have been preparing for an attack. What have you learned? Good evening, Caitlin. Well, uh, some, sometime on Friday evening or Friday afternoon, Israeli intelligence started picking up on, you know, small signs that each of them alone doesn't really show anything. But when you put all of them together, you start getting this very uh, worrying picture of Hamas maybe thinking of doing something. And because of all of those signs, a series of high-level consultations uh, uh, took place, some of it. Uh, on Friday night, several hours, four or five hours before the uh, Hamas attack. And those consultations were, I mean, the IDF chief of staff, General Halevi, was on the consultation. Uh, the head of the military intelligence, the head of the Southern Command, the head of the Shin Bet security agency. So all the top security officials in the country were on those uh, uh, conference calls. And the, uh, the dilemma was whether this is a real preparation for an attack or an exercise, and there, was, there were several proposals to put the, uh, the border, all the uh, IDF forces on the border, on high alert, and at the end, the decision was not to do it and wait for the morning to see what happens. Several hours later, the attack took place. I mean, if these were high-level consultations, I mean, what has the prime minister's office said about all of this? Well, the main question was whether someone... Uh, updated the, the prime minister or the minister of defense. And the truth is, nobody did. Uh, wow. Netanyahu, according to his office, and I have to say, I checked it with several sources, and I think that they're not lying when they're saying it, that Netanyahu got his update at 6.29 a.m. when the rockets were, uh, when Hamas started firing rockets and mortar shells at those villages uh, near the border. Uh, and until then, he didn't even know that there was this issue, that there was this uh, uh, intelligence signs that something might be uh, happening. But, you know, at 629, it was already too late. That is so striking. And of course, I mean, that has been one of the biggest questions that everyone has, given how venerated Israel's security and intelligence apparatus is. But, you know, Brock, I was looking at this and we were talking about this last night at the end of the show. This is another piece really based on reporting that you had that's highly relevant right now because you had the reporting when Trump accused 
Netanyahu of disloyalty. He was mad that he had acknowledged President Biden's win. And he's been criticizing him publicly. He's praising Hezbollah as very smart. He's been going off and criticizing really the missed intelligence and that Netanyahu was caught off guard and saying that he was uh, ill-prepared to handle this, essentially. Yes, I think that if, if anybody uh, was still wondering uh, whether uh, Donald Trump cooled down uh, from the fact that Netanyahu congratulated Joe Biden after he won the elections, he had no other uh, choice. You know, you need to uh, congratulate the new president. Uh, so Donald Trump did not cool down. Uh, not only did he not cool down, it seems that he's even, uh, you know, more angry at Netanyahu and it uh, makes him say, uh, you know, really uh, weird stuff. Uh, and I think that a lot of people that are uh, both Netanyahu supporters and Trump supporters, you know, raised eyebrows over those comments that, that honestly are really mind-boggling. Yeah. And I asked Netanyahu about that and he, if it bothered him, because, I mean, not only did he accuse him of disloyalty, he also used an expletive to you saying F him, speaking of, of Netanyahu. I asked if he, that bothered him and he kind of chalked it up to political life, saying things ebb and flow. Of course, that was before Trump was attacking him, you know, days yeah, after and by the, the way, deadliest day. You know, what Netanyahu told you, and this was very interesting because it was something that I did not know and nobody knew until he told this to you that Trump sent him a note congratulating him for winning the elections. So I thought that, you know, Trump was, you know, cooling down. Apparently, he's not. Yeah. Barack Ravid, great reporting as always. Thank you for tonight. Thank you, Caitlin. Meanwhile, U.S. cities are also bolstering security as war tensions have been rising. Questions, of course, about what's happening in Israel, the effects it's having here in the United States. Why tomorrow in particular is of concern to officials. We'll brief you next. Today, President Biden and Vice President Harris meeting with top law enforcement and national security officials to talk about how to safeguard the United States as we are seeing war break out in the Middle East. A new video message from a former Hamas leader is encouraging supporters to show anger tomorrow on Friday, October the 13th. Ahead of possible protests, the New York Police Department is stepping up its security at synagogues and other sensitive targets across New York. But the governor said tonight there is no credible th threat. That is just a precaution. Joining me now is CNN's John Miller, our chief law enforcement analyst and the former deputy commissioner of intelligence and counterterrorism for the NYPD. I mean, it is very important that their DHS officials have said repeatedly there is no credible threat. But what are they doing to make sure that they're prepared for it in case there is one? So what they understand is, even if there's no specific credible threat that's on the radar, there might be one that's not on the radar. Their main concern is the propaganda, the chat rooms, the dark corners of the Internet, and that lone wolf who decides that they are going to rewrite their life story by taking some kind of stand and committing a violent act. So that means things you'll see. You'll see the Hercules teams, the heavily armed teams with the explosive detection dogs and rifles at key Jewish locations. You'll see the the striker teams moving from location to location. There's a lot of fluidity and unpredictability to it. So if you're looking at a target, you don't know when it's going to be secured heavily or not um, to keep people off balance. And the other thing is the intelligence division, their human sources beyond, you know, uh, their surveillance of known gathering places on the Internet of violent extremists. And they have help. They have help from the Community Security Initiative, uh, they have help from the ADL and others who do the same thing. So 
There's a lot of conversations going on, but the key is... What are they looking for? They're looking for somebody who is either saying, can somebody help me do an act of violence, or somebody who's saying, I'm looking for someone to carry one out. Um, that's the basics. But this is a tough business because, you know, you had the Tree of Life synagogue attack where the person was in one of these forums and said, I'm going in. And that was the only clue he left before he committed a massacre. Um, so a lot of effort goes into this. The good news for a place like New York um, is that no place puts more resources into that. But there are other cities that are part of that network and they share the information, so it works. And I interrupted you. What were you saying was the key thing? The key thing is to look for that individual who is looking for that connection to say, you know, where's the target, where to go, what to do, um, and to get in between them and action. Yeah. John Miller, I know you're tracking all of this. We'll check back in with you tomorrow, of course, as this continues to develop. Thanks, Thank Caitlin. you for that reporting. And thank you so much for joining us in this hour. CNN Newsnight with Abby Phillips starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.